Welcome to the Success Inspired Podcast, a business and personal development podcast to help you accomplish more in life and realize your true potential. And now here is your host, Fit Muller. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another interview on the Success Inspired Podcast. I'm your host, Vit, and today I've got another exciting guest to interview. My guest today is a Perth-based photographer specializing in corporate portrait, event, and business photography. He's recently released a book called Decide Your Destiny, which is all about principles of improvement, commitment to always do your best, be kind to others, have more social responsibility, look for truth, and see the heart and soul in every human being. Please welcome to the show, Kyle Spiritus. Thanks, Pitt. Hey, guys. How are you going? Hey, Kyle. Great to have you in the show, mate. Great to have you in the show. Now, since I've introduced you a little bit, what's something that not many people know about you? Well, I traveled around and lived in multiple countries when I was younger. So I had a client recently and they were chatting to me and they said, sounds like your parents are diplomats because I was born in South Africa, Johannesburg, moved to Bondi in Sydney when I was two years old, moved to Ireland when I was about five, then lived in France for a period of time and and eventually came back to Australia. But, but when I was young, I had a lot of movement and that actually started off from my mother. She was actually an international model very early on. And she, when I, when I was born, about two months after I was born, she had to go to a contract over in Japan and then that contract got extended. So that contract got extended to you know, Germany and different sort of places. So she was working for Vogue back in the day. And actually, that's probably what I should mention is I actually grew up in a pub. So from zero to about, you know, two in South Africa, I grew up in a pub with my granny because I was in South Africa and it was pretty dangerous to have me at home on my own. And my granny had a pub that she worked in full time and I slept like overnight in the pub. I you know, stayed in the pub all the time, played pool with, you know, the patrons watch TV. I would scream out for my grandmother. You know, I, 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 apparently I'd sit on the stool. I had my chosen stool and my chosen TV and I'd go, granny, I scream. And I just, I'd scream for my grandmother. <laughs> and this one patron came on a Saturday and she, she would come every Saturday and she came up to me and she was this lovely old lady. And she said to me, Kyle, you can't scream for your granny. She's in the back. She's working really hard in the back there. And apparently the story goes, I said to her, if I call my granny, she will come. And then I went, granny. <laughs> so, so my social engagement as a kid was uh, yeah, tested quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I think it's very important for kids too. You know, some parents, they really protect their kids and they don't let them, they don't let anybody to hold them or anything like that. And then, you know, I mean, that's, I think it's very important to, to very early on get them used to other people because I think it's, yeah, it plays a big role in in more social i guess which exactly. you being in the part you have plenty of experiences like that so that's cool yeah now what compelled you to become a photographer that question that question i had to think about for a while i think it's it's it, you know i looked at it it was it started off just taking photos of my phone so for some reason i just had this this deep interest and i think for a lot of people a lot of the listeners out there you know if we think about it and we look at actually our phone and we see how many photos do we have in our camera roll some have twenty thousand, some have ten thousand. You know, some of 5,000, we realized, oh my gosh, I've got all these photos on my phone. And for me, I was just, I felt compelled to take photos. And it wasn't of, you know, I know you got a young child, like it wasn't of like family or, or, or friends. It was more of just 
like moments like light would hit a building or there'd be a combination of elements and it would just visually I would just be zoned in and like nothing around me it could be heavy traffic you know it could be busy Sydney city nothing around me would, would mess with me I would be focused on capturing that moment and getting the best shot of that so I think a lot of it was intuition you know and 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 it was a feeling so you know, it wasn't, I guess, a scientific analysis of what I want out of my life, what I want to do, those sorts of things. I mean, that, that's come later on in my life. But at that time, it was just this deep intuition. And this, it was like something was pulling me, you know, mm. visual elements were pulling me to capture them. Eventually, at that time, I went over to Ireland again when I was in my early 20s. And at that time, uh, my grandparents actually gave me a, a small camera. And I just was taking photographs all the time in Ireland. I was taking photographs with surfers. I was walking through farmland, you know, like where these cows and horses were kind of marching, marching me down. And, <laughs> and I actually felt threatened. It was quite an interesting experience, but I, but I was just so keen on it. And then eventually my, my stepfather in Ireland, who I was staying with, said, well, why don't you do photography you know, as a career? And I kind of laughed, you know, I chuckled it off, you know, very, you know, like very modern society sort of, you know, I guess coming out of a private school, corporate sort of thinking, like, you know, photography, like, what do you mean? I've got to go get a real job, man. Like, so he said, well, what about your uncle? And it was so funny, but my uncle was actually, you know, an international acclaimed photographer, commercial photographer that would work for Qantas, the Wallabies, NRMA. And so I actually went and studied in the course that he studied. And then when I finished my course, I actually worked with him on those jobs with those big clients, NRMA, you know, Commonwealth Bank, but there's a $2 million advertising budget and you've got eight, you know, advertising like assistants there on site helping directors photo shoot. So it, it was definitely, it all started from a phone, which I think mm. is probably maybe, maybe it's an inspiration for a lot of people out there. You know, don't, don't judge where you start or what you start with. It's about the creative process. Absolutely. I mean, in your, in, in your case, obviously you'd have, uh, I guess you were fortunate having your uncle so that would have given you open the door a little bit and in a way have those, you know, the potential, what's the potential, the, these big type of jobs, the opportunity to experience it very early on would yes. have then, I guess, help you realize, okay, well, this is what is possible if I pursue this career and I could eventually get to the same place like my uncle, if that's what, you know, obviously you wanted to pursue. Fast forward now. Since you, you know, ventured on to, you know, start working with your ankle, where were you now with your photography business? Yeah, so with him, I was able to learn a lot about the commercial photography side. And, you know, that was really, really great. I got that experience. I saw how he dealt with a lot of those, you know, those projects and all the different personalities and the different, you know, decision makers. And, you know, that really set me off to work out what do I want to do. And I got into event photography and I was working in Sydney. And then eventually I actually moved over to Perth and I had to start up again. And one of the reasons I moved to Perth was I wanted to kind of move out of my comfort zone, you know, move away from family, move to a place where I didn't have anybody and see how I could, how I could fare. And with the photography business, early on, I pretty much learned that business photography was the one for me. You know, it's all year round. I love businesses. I think small business and diversification you know, is the way to a better world and a um, more sustainable world. You know, and I value a lot of small business people who are there just trying to support their family, trying to make a way in the world. And, you know, and, and those businesses can grow and, and, and get more, more employees along and, and create amazing things. So I thought, you know, I really want to work with small to medium-sized business and branding photography. 
So I went, you know, I went into branding photography, website product photography, and yeah, and that's just been such a joy for me personally. I originally got into taking portraits. That was really what I loved. So you know, I've got the portrait, you know, of my grandfather just just behind me, and what I was doing in that moment was I saw him come down. So I live with my grandparents, and I saw him come down the stairs. I just came back from a from a shoot, and it was kind of a landscape shoot. And I was going through the photos and I just turned to my right and then I did a double take and I went, whoa, you know, and he had the beret on, the light was hitting, it was the morning light, it was coming through his window. He's an architect, so he designed his house. So he had light coming from both sides of his house, which is kind of split lighting. And I just went, all right, stay there. I need to start taking photographs of you, you know? And so I just started taking photographs and it was a very natural process. You know, I was talking to him and my grandparents, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're born in, he was born in 1927. So they're not used to cameras in your face, you know, kind mm. of how we are. So for them, it was very, yeah, it was, oh, God, Kyle. Oh, come on, Kyle. You know, oh, another photo. Haven't you photographed us enough? So, you know, I had to really work with them. And I just started capturing photographs and talking to him. And there was just this one moment where he just looked over my shoulder and he just kind of lost consciousness. Like, I think he went deep into, like, subconscious. Like, you know, he, he, he kind of just lost his, you know, is, like he's uh, zoomed out. Yeah, zoomed out, and he and he and I, what I believe is that, and I and I tested this with my whole family, and that was my project is capturing all their portraits around my grandparents' house, in different locations. And I worked out that if you talk to someone for long enough, and you're taking photographs and you're getting into you know, asking them questions, they get to a certain point where they reveal their soul, reveal their essence, mm. and it's the split moment where they forget the camera's no longer there. They forget that you're no longer there and they go deep within themselves. And I just felt like they were the most powerful portraits. And I'd go through 200, 400, 600 photographs, you know, that I took. And that would be the photograph that I would choose. So I was really big on capturing the essence on the soul of the subject. And to be honest, grandparents, so like my elderly people and my younger cousins were the easiest to capture their soul because they live their essence forward. You know, they live their being forward. Teenagers. I had some teenage cousins and they've got, you know, a massive like veil up, you know, a protection or an mm. identity crisis or, a, you know, as they're going through that time, which, you know, I understand because I went through that time myself. So, so they took two hours, you know, to, to get their essence where grandparents and kids, it was a lot quicker. This is very interesting because this is in a way, it's a great advice for any, any photographers out there thinking about this because it's not just about, you know, all the technical bits, you know, light you know, what camera you use and distance and, and all that, but actually thinking about the subject more. And, and like you said, I mean, you're right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess teenagers would be having a bit more of a, you know, especially, you know, all the hormones going through it and craziness. They're trying to figure themselves out. Yes. They're trying to, yeah, they, they're overprotecting themselves and yeah, they don't really show it's harder to get them to show their, you know, or get them to be more uh, relaxed and I guess in a natural state. Right. Uh, whereas if all all the people that they've you know they've got nothing to hide, they, they want to help others in in general. Plus, they got all the wrinkles on their face, so that kind of makes it cool as well. Like with all the light and everything. I mean, I'm looking at the photo now. For those of you guys, if you want to see it, I know I'll put a photo there on the podcast show notes. But Kyle's granddad, I see it on the photo, and it's a great picture. It's a great picture. So your business is called Soul Gazing, and you talked about you know you're able to get people to you know show their soul is that how you come up with that name correct correct you know i thought about 
I saw everyone, you know, John Roberts photography and Mark Williams photography. And you know, so I thought Carl Spreedy's photography, well, firstly, a lot of people find it hard to pronounce my last name and spell my last name. Did Maybe I say it? Did I say it right? Yeah, yeah. Carl Spreedy's. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people oh, say spy rides. Spiridis. I said Spirides. Oh, look, that's okay. You're, you're adding a little flavor to it. Spirides. <laughs> okay. So that sounds very Greek. Is that a Greek background, do you? Yeah. So, so my father's side is Greek Cypriot. So he was born in South Africa. My mother was born in South Africa. And my, yeah, so my father's side is from Cyprus. And down my mother's side, there's Scottish. So my middle name is Ross. So it's mm-hmm. Kyle Ross. So it's an it's, it's interesting mix. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this book, this book that, you are, that you've written. Yeah, so, so my grandfather is not actually my, my, related to me, right? So I came to South Africa. I left my grandparents, my biological dad, and it was my stepdad that brought me over. You know, I was telling my mother, you've got to bring him over because it was 1995 in South Africa, which was, you know, it was a great time as Mandela was coming in and, you know, the old guard was going out. But it was also a very dangerous time. Because whenever you have you know, quite a shift, you know, there was a lot of violence, a lot of backlash. So it was quite a dangerous time to be in South Africa. Plus, you look at Australia, you look at South Africa, you know, and the violence comparison. So you know, my, step, my, my mum was actually traveling around the world. So she actually, one of the places she came to was Sydney and she met a, met a gentleman by the name of Ward. And they were together for a couple of weeks. And he said, well, you know, you've got a little son. And she said, well, you've got to bring him over. You know, bring him over to Australia, you know. So... He really wanted me to come over. They brought me over to Australia and I left all, all of my family you know, overseas. And I walked up my grandparents' house and my new Australian grandparents, right? So Ward's mm-hmm. parents. All right. My grandmother said to me, she said, she still tells the story. She said she had this overwhelming feeling in her body, kind of like this message from God that she was going to be important in my life, that she was going to be significant you know, in my life. And she saw in my eyes, I had like this lost look in my eyes, this lost boy look as I was looking around, this, you know, these, these unusual Australians, you know, this isn't my South African family, you know, who are these people? So she could see this fear and worry in this like two-year-old kid's face, you know, so, but she got that feeling. So it ended up as my life went on when I was about 14, I had nowhere to go late one night and I traveled down to Cronulla to, to see my grandparents. And it was about 2 a.m. I was knocking on the window, you know, I just skipped a couple train trains you know to get to get down there uh, hour and a half trip and I just was knocking on the window and I just knew I needed to get inside you know because I was kicked outside kicked onto the streets I needed to get inside somewhere I needed somewhere to sleep for the night and they came down in their in their gowns and they opened up their door and they really became my parents you know they raised me for about 10 years they were the most stable parental figures that I had in my life and they're amazing and I would go in their morning their, their room every morning every evening and I would talk to them I talked to them about serious issues, serious life issues, serious problems. And I would just talk to them and they just listen. They just, they just listen. Sometimes I'd give advice. And one day I was sitting down on the couch with my, and I had my grandfather to my right. And I looked over at him and the sun was kissing the side of his face. It was coming through the blinds. And he just had this boyish, like charming smile. And I could feel his, feel his face, like this joy fill his face. And he looked at me and he just said, decide your destiny. And I went, what? He said, Kyle, make sure you decide your destiny in your life. What are you saying, Kyle? He goes, whatever you do in your life, decide your destiny. And it was kind of like he just came, maybe he was thinking, what wisdom can I impart on this young man's life? You know, what, mm. what can I give him that's going to be really 
great, you know. And so as my life went on and, you know, I was looking at where I wanted to go for success in my life and what success I actually had achieved already, I started to realize that every success I had was through me deciding my destiny. So that's where the book came about. And it just kind of started bleeding out of me. You know, I would go for a run every morning and I'd have to stop and just write and write and write because it would just ooze out of me, you know? And so there's, there's lots of elements in there. My grandparents, some serious health issues. And I mean, I mean, we can go into a bit of that if you like. Sure. So, so when I was 18, two months after I finished school, I came home um, from the gym. So I was, I was, I was a big rugby, rugby you know, guy. So I, I played rugby on Saturdays and Sundays and I was all about protein and, and you know, muscles and, and, and everything to do with that. So I came home from the gym, great session, grabbed an up and go, went, in, went into um, the house, started watching Independence Day, you know, the one with all the aliens and, mm. and Will Smith. Will Smith, so, yeah. Yeah, so I started watching that movie and I was you know, getting into it. And then all of a sudden I started feeling really, really cold so i put everything on put jumpers beanie scarf everything put all the blankets on and then the next moment i felt i felt really hot and i took everything off and i was just sitting there stark naked on the couch the next night i went to get ice from the from the fridge and i collapsed onto the ground and i and i laid there for about you know it seemed like 20 minutes but i was fully conscious but i just could not move my body and this continued on i got sick I, you know it was coming out both ends and my, you know, my family took me up to, I was staying with my mother at the time and some of my staff and family were over and they took me up to the hospital, uh, so, to the doctor. And the doctor said, all right, you've just got gastro. Here's some med- medications. Take it. You'll be fine. Took the medications, vomited up straight away. A couple of days later, I said, you know, I need to go to the hospital. There's something seriously wrong with me. And I just, I had this, like I talked about the intuition. I just mm. gut feeling. I, I was like, there's something wrong with my body. I need to go to the hospital. And I was begging so my mother took me down to my, my grandparents, my Australian grandparents from Cronulla. My grandmother saw me and she took me up to my uncle. And my uncle is a chiropractor. And he looked at me and he, and he said, this guy's got a virus. As I came down the hallway, he's got a serious viral, viral infection. Take him to the, to the local doctor. If he doesn't take, send him to the hospital, you take him to the hospital yourself. So I went to my local doctor in Cronulla. And this guy was a lovely guy. When I was going through some hardships in my life, he gave me this book. And the title was Hope. And it had all these beautiful quotes about life. You know, so he was this lovely doctor. He was this Chinese doctor. About 10 years earlier, he spent a lot of time in hospital, like, you know, working with, like, learning all about viruses and different sort of things. And he looked at the tips of my fingers. And he said, you've got red dots at the ends of your fingers. And this means you've got an infection on your heart. And now normally, in normal consciousness, I would have shocked and freaked out but i was so sick that my it was like a vignette around my eyes you know i was it was like i wasn't really there you know it was like dark and i couldn't really see i wasn't really conscious that's how how ill i was and so you know okay and then my family said all right we need to take you to the hospital so they called the ambulance rushed to the hospital and i was at the hospital and the you know i said to my family i can't can't pee or poo like i I need to go to the toilet but I i just can't physically do it so I grabbed the nurse and the nurse looked at my paperwork and said, you know, what the hell are you doing here? You're supposed to be rushed through the ICU. The reason you can't excrete is because your organs are actually shutting down. And so she rushed me through. I was on this bed um, and this cardiologist said, Carl, we're going to put a pipe down your throat and we're just going to put you to sleep now. Mm. And again, like I said, I was so sick that it was just like, oh, okay. Like, you know, just because I was out of it. You know? so, yeah, right. so 
I mean, maybe that was a saving grace for, for my heart at that time because I was, I was very, very, yeah, very out of it. Now, this is where the, the story takes a deviation. You know, some people on one side are going <laughs> to, they might be a bit uh, uncomfortable about the story. Other people might go and, and, and fully dive into the story. So my mother called my stepdad, you know, the one that brought me to Australia. And he was in Ireland at the time. And he was also a chiropractor, but he had a lot of, he, you know, he's a kinesiologist and he had a lot of understanding in natural healthcare. And she called him and because she always trusted what he, he'd say, you know, even though they were split up at this time, he, he always trusted what he'd say about health. And she told him the situation, you know, the doctor says, Carl's most likely not going to make it through the night. They, they want to operate now. If they operate, you know, they're most likely he won't make it through, make it through the operation, but they want to give it a go. He's got a three centimeter bug eating the hole into his heart. And, you know, yeah, yeah. So, and, you know, and, and he's got about a 33% chance of, 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 of living, you know, with this, you know, with that bug. So where does this bug come from? Was it like three centimeters big bug? Yeah, three centimeters, three centimeters big on my heart, eating a hole into my heart. How did, how did where did it come from? Did, did they figure it out? So they, they never figured it out where it actually came from. They actually, they had eight, I guess, ways of investigating you know, eight, eight plausible reasons but they, they can never figure out where and in the end of the day they said look there was a one in a billion chance and i took that i just went okay that's what it is they originally thought it was golden stuff which golden stuff is something that actually lives around your nose on your face on your hands mm, so okay. it's so it's something like that so they thought i must have had a weakened heart valve already but that didn't make sense because i was playing rugby saturday and sunday i was really fit and healthy you know so you know, and you know, playing rugby for you know, long games, like the full game, I had a lot of endurance. You know what I mean? So, so it didn't seem as though I had a weak heart. So yeah, so th th they don't know what the cause was because they said golden staff, and they said actually maybe it's just regular staff, but they just couldn't they couldn't determine it. And so I just took the one in a billion chance because to be honest, if I knew you know that maybe it was something stupid, maybe it was a product that I took, a protein shake or whatever it was, mm. um, or, or, or a pre workout shake. You know, if I if I knew that, then I'd probably be kicking myself. You know, but they gave me look. It's a one in a billion chance. And for me, I just took like like my grandmother would say. I looked at the donut, not the hole. You know, so but <laughs> so, so, so I took it as I could. But at that time in the hospital, my mother called my stepdad, and he actually said, "Now this is where it gets a bit interesting." Mm -hmm. You know, people might call it woo woo, but he I believe he did this. I don't know if he actually did this, but he has this thing where he pulls his fingers. And he kind of like pulls them and he, he I, I, I believe he's asking the ether or, or he's seeking, you know, we're all seeking something in our lives. So he's seeking some sort of answer outside of himself, especially when, when someone's coming to him with a, like a health question, you know? So he's like, I have my knowledge, you know, the doctors have their knowledge, everyone has their knowledge, mm. but what decision are we going to make? You know? And so I guess sometimes maybe he tries to feel what the decision is. Now he said to my mother, don't let them operate. He's too weak. You know, I don't believe that he'll make it through the operation. That's my, that's my opinion. You decide, but, but, but that's, that's my, my take on it. So I, I woke up about a week later and he was flown over and he sat in front of me and he said, look, Carl, there's like, this is a situation. You got this bug, you know, here's all the paper, here's all the medical tests. Here's the contract, like the, the thing you have to sign. If you want to have the surgery, this is what's going to happen. They're going to cut off a big part of your heart and you're going to have this metal attachment 
you're not, you know, you're not going to be able to do this, this, and this. You're going to be on heavy medications that thin your blood. You, you know, you're going to be have a, have a pretty shitty life. You know, so I was 18. So, you know, it wasn't sounding too, too, too dandy at that, at that point. So, mm. so he said, there's another option. And he said, I've done this before with people, close people to me, and only close people to me. He said, there's this thing called the alkaline diet. And the premise is, or the, the, the idea behind it, is that you starve the, the body of all sugars and the bug has nothing to sustain itself. And you basically starve, you drive the bug out by starving it. So it's a juicing fast. And at that time, I mean, all I believed in was biceps and protein. So, so you know, I, I was like, look, I don't know any of this stuff. I don't necessarily believe in any of this stuff, you know, but I trust you as a man. And I trust you'll do right by me. You've always done right by me. So let's go with this decision. And then he, then, then we started doing the juicing diet. And he, he, it started with him writing out a list, you know. So I started writing out a list of all the things that I really enjoyed. And I was like, oh, great. I was like, He's taken a menu order. I was like, all right, so I love triple cheeseburgers. I love, and he goes, no, no, I need you to sweat all this out of your system. You know, because you're going into this, this diet, this whole health kick. And mm. we seriously need to take care of this bug you know, like in the next three weeks. So, so I thought that was a bit mean. He handed me a beetroot juice, had a sip of it, instantly regretted my decision. I was like, <laughs> how the hell am I going to do this? So anyway, the program consisted of all the, you know, what we did, we had juices every day, salads, juices and salads. That's all I had. No protein, uh, no carbs. No protein, no carbs, no sugars, no nothing, just juices. I mean, the amino acids that would have been in the spinach and different sort of things, yeah. you know, so like nothing. maybe broccoli different sort of things but nothing i mean I, I i lost when i when i was in hospital i entered there i was about 95 kilos of pure muscle and when i left i was about 77 oh, actually early on in hospital I was about 77 kilos so i dropped a ton of weight i had vitamins i had i was doing meditations my grandmother actually gave me some of her meditations which were all about peaks and valleys so i remember a ton of peaks and valleys and i was doing visualization so i was you know I, I learned a lot about the heart and where my valve was, my mitral valve. And I was you know, going over my heart and you know, saying, heal, heal. So doing all these things that were totally out of my comfort zone, totally out of what I'd ever done in my life. Mm. Purely believing that this would do something and just wanting, kind of like uh, Peruvian people do. They, they believe that, that try natural first. Obviously, it depends. You know, if, you're, if, you've got a, if your leg's cut you know, or, or whatever it is, it's totally circumstantial. So anyone listening to it, totally circumstantial. And my, what I did was a huge risk. I'm not denying that. But, you know, you try natural first. That's a Peruvian belief. If natural is not working, then you go and do things that you can't reverse. So, so for me, yeah, so, so I did all of this. And we spoke to the cardiologist. And the cardiologist said, look, you got this bug. You know, are we going to operate? You know, and we said, wait, hold on a minute. Is there any other option? And we questioned, we questioned, we questioned. Ward helped me out a lot. He said, look, if the bug gets down to 0. 2 cent, uh, 0.5 centimeters, then it's a non-issue. And we went, okay, great. That, that's our goal. And then the cardiologist huffed and puffed and he, and he left out of the room. And, you know, I know. So, sorry to stop you there. So you were doing this juicing diet by this, by this stage? Exactly, exactly. In and, you, and you were still in hospital. So they let your granddad to, to use his. My stepdad, surgery. yeah, my stepdad. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. they didn't object or. They didn't. Oh, no, no. To they totally objected. They, I mean, they were trying to throw my vitamins into the bin, you know, like some of the nurses, uh, the nurses were like, abusing me. They saying, like, what do I think I was doing? How dare I think I can you know, take my health in my own hands? 
you know, prof is trying to help me out. You know, like, who do I think I am? So it was very intense because I, mm. I, I grew up believing, you know, every policeman's a good guy, every fireman's a good guy, every, you know, doctor, nurse is a good person. And I realized, okay, my, my, my reality or my naivety is, is not serving me here. I need to actually understand that everyone has their own motivations and their own beliefs. And it's not that these people are terrible people. I mean, they were coming from their belief system mm. and they were going, which I was, I was definitely risking a lot at that time. And they were going, you know, how dare he? So, so they were trying to decide my destiny for me and I was trying to decide my destiny myself. Mm-hmm. And so I had Ward and, I had, and most of my family didn't believe in what I was doing. So I had Ward, I had my, my grandparents, you know, and I had a few people in my corner and I just kept going with it. And, you know, I, I, I kept doing it and I, I, I believed in Ward. I didn't necessarily believe that this would work. You know, I, I believed I'm going to give it up my all and I'm going to believe that it's going to work at this time, but I've got no idea. Like, I, I really don't know. I'm, I'm really unsure. But I just kept doing everything. I kept to it. I couldn't have any electronic device around me. I had to be purely focused on what I was doing. And the three-week mark came up and the cardiologist came in and he said, all right, we're going to, are we going to operate? You know, are we going to operate? Are we going to cut your valve off? Like, are we going to put, you know, put this metal attachment on? And we went, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> let's see all the, you know, all the, all the numbers. You know, what's going on? What's and we kept questioning him and he said, you know, all right, here it is, here it is. And the bug had gone down to 0.2 centimeters. Mm-hmm. And this is where me and Ward, we clapped, we cheered. We're like, oh my God, this is amazing. I can't believe it. And the cardiologist stormed, stormed out of the room. And so I was there for a couple more weeks. And they wanted me there for about six weeks and I had to get out because I was getting healthier. You know, I was like, I need to be out of hospital. In hospital, if you're healthy, it's like prison. So I went, you know, get me the hell out of here. And I left in a, in a wheelchair. During the time of my hospital stay, I, I made friends with this Somalian gentleman and me and him, we just got along like, you know, house on fire. We were like really good friends. And as I was leaving in the wheelchair, I was turning around the corner, just turning around the corner out of that room that I spent five and a half weeks in. Mm-hmm. And he grabbed my shoulder and he, and I went, oh, hey, man. And he said, I said, I'm going now. And he said, oh, look, you know, I'm, I'm just here to tell, deliver a message from Prof. I went, okay. He said, look, your, your lungs will be full of blood. You're going to choke to death in your sleep in about two months time. And so I just started like tearing up. And I was like, <laughs> and, and I just, to the person that was you know, pushing me in the wheelchair, I just said, keep going. Like, get me the, get me the death out of here. I need to, I need to leave. This place is not, not healthy. And that so, was your friend, the Somalian friend that taught you that? Yeah, so he's the register. So he was the guy that would always deliver, like he would see me a lot more than the, the, than the professor. So yeah. he was sent down right at the end to deliver that message. Cause message, from, message from who? From, from the cardiologist, from the, from the cardiologist that had been seeing us wanting to do the surgery the whole time. So, Jesus. so he obviously heard that I was leaving, right? And I had totally gone against all of his advice, you know, mm. all of his belief system, you know, so... I guess by his account, I'd done wrong by him. So, so that was pretty brutal. But anyway, I left the hospital. And then I spent about 12 months trying to see what I could do because I, I had healed the bug off my valve, but the bug, obviously, part of the, um, the, the valve had been eaten. So the, the valve wasn't closing properly. So I was contacting people in Germany who were doing stem cell research. You know, they said, look, we, we, we're not at the technology yet to be able to heal heart valves like this. You know, I was trying everything I could. And I went, I started seeing this new, about three months after I came out of the hospital, I started seeing this new cardiologist. Told him about our experience. My whole family were there. And then he started and he said, look, I play golf with that guy on, on the weekends. Like, I don't want to hear anything. And my family started to get upset and said, this is, you know, this is wrong. And I said, everyone out of the room, I need to have one 
good person on my side. You know, this other cardiologist came family recommended. I just said, I need to have one person. I told him my story. I told him I healed myself naturally. He said, look, I don't believe it, but you know, like, what are we going to do now? I said, look, I don't want to have the metal attachment. I want to be able to repair my bowel. He said, to be honest, man, you don't have much of much chance. You got probably a 30% chance that we could repair it. And so I left, went back, came back another six months, kept trying to heal myself naturally. And he said, okay, your heart has gone down in size and this is probably why, but you've got about a 60% chance or 50 60% chance now. So I left, came back another three months and later. Hang on. And so how come the percentage went up? Well, he said, he said it was because my heart, so it was how my heart was functioning. So mm-hmm. my heart size had gone down and my heart was getting a bit, like getting a bit better at my normal rhythm. So they had to repair a valve and make sure that that valve would be able to close the blood, open the blood. So the percentages were giving based on better rhythm. Yeah. So so every time I would go to him, I'd do an echocardiogram, which is basically like an ultrasound of your heart. Right. Um, Do do a bunch of tests, and the echocardiogram would be the main telltale sign. And they had a really good, really good one machine. So yeah. So based on all the measurements, the percentage was higher. And then I went back again, and so about at the you know. 11th month mark, he said, look, you actually got probably a 70% chance. So I went, holy crap. I called my, my, my stepdad in Ireland, you know, the, the man who healed me, natu- helped heal me naturally. I said, what do I do? And he, he threw it back at me and said, what do you want to do? I said, look, it's probably time to have, have the operation. So I went in, my grandparents knew, knew about it. They were the only people that knew the date of the, the operation. And I, the night before I was at a friend's house you know, playing a bit of video games. I was trying to be as normal as I could. I left it in, in the car to drive home. And he said, he said, oh, don't you have that thing tomorrow? I said, yeah, 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 I'll, I'll see you next week. And I just closed the door, you know, because I just wanted to make sure that my mentality, everything was focused on this repair. You know, my mindset, my visualization, everything was focused on this goal to actually have a repaired valve. So I went into the surgery and they cut your chest open. Then they cut into your heart. And you're, you're pretty much dead for about five hours, you know? And so they do the operation and I woke up and I woke up screaming. Right. So they, they, your heart is not beating at that time when they're doing the operation. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and yeah. so it's all done by mechanically your, your circulatory, yeah, your, yeah. Your bloodstream, yes. whatever. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, you know, I had, I had a friend of mine who was studying like to be a cardiologist and he was telling me like, you know, about the kind of procedure because he'd, he'd seen people go through the open heart surgery. And so... I went through it, came out, and I came out screaming. And someone grabbed my hand. And I, I don't remember. I don't remember saying this, but apparently I was saying, "Repair or replacement? Repair or replacement? You know, was the valve repaired or was the valve replaced? You know, like uh, did I have this metal attachment?" And someone grabbed my hand and said, "It was a repair, Carl. It was a repair." And so this is me in ICU. I'm swearing. I'm going yes. You know, I'm just going nuts. Just you know, like so happy that they they're able to repair my valve. Then mm-hmm. then the doctor comes over and says, "Look." you're actually in heart block at the moment. Well, what does that mean? Because I, I was sure I could ask every question. I covered all the bases. I knew all the, you know, the, the possible bad things that could happen. He said, your heart hasn't got back into normal rhythm. And he said, give it about a week, we'll get back into normal rhythm. But this machine is basically be, beating for your heart. I went, okay, that's new. And then about a week later, I said, look, your heart hasn't gone out of normal rhythm. What actually happens when we do the operation is that there's electro signals that signal the heart to pump blood into the, um, atrium and out of the ventrium. So, that, so, they, so put those, a base, they put a pacemaker on you. So now they had to go and put me in surgery and, and, and give me a pacemaker. Mm-hmm. So I had the surgery pacemaker. 
six weeks later, I was going for my provision test. So, so during that time in healing, I was, I was, I had ward still there and I was going into like the ocean pool pretty quickly on, I was trying to move like kind of like a robot. My, my younger brother was doing laps. He's eight years younger than me. He was doing laps in the ocean pool next to me and every little ripple, just like it was so much pain. It shook me off axis. So I was trying really early on to try and get the muscles back working, get some movement into my body. And that was an extremely painful time in my life. And I really didn't, I was not enjoying painkillers. So I was really trying to come off them. And about six weeks after surgery, I went to go and get my provisional license. And I started feeling bloated. And I was with someone at the time and they said, you know, I mentioned, oh, yeah. and I was thinking about, maybe I'll mention to maybe I won't. I said, oh, yeah, I'm feeling a little bloated. I was like, oh, maybe I should still go. And they went, no, no, no. You just had surgery, mate. Like we're taking you to the cardiologist. Went to the cardiologist and he looked at me and he said, Carl, you've got hours to live. And I went, are you kidding me? Like this is happening again. Like what the hell is wrong? And he said, you know, like when you're feeling bloated, did you not go to a hospital, did you not go to a doctor? I said, yeah, I went to the, to the hospital down, down near Cronulla a week ago. And they said I was fine. And he goes, what test did they give you? He goes, they gave me, he said, they gave me an ECG which is basically where they put the stickers around you. And he said, he said, I'm going to sue that place. I'm going to write them a letter. Every person that has surgery, heart surgery, you need to give them an echocardiogram. You know, this is bullshit. He goes, you're like literally hours away from dying. So he sent me over to the hospital. What had happened is because of the trauma of the surgery, your heart sits in a sac called the pericardium and the sac was filling up with blood. And mm. once it fills up with too much blood, you know, your heart pretty much explodes. So it's it kind of like when you injure yourself, your body releases all the swelling as a healing process. So post surgery, that's what the body did and was too correct. much, too much of it. Correct. And my, my valve was also leaking blood. So, cause they repaired it, but they couldn't repair it fully to a functioning valve that I was born with. So, but, but this pericard, pericarditis is, is something that often happens people post surgery. So anybody out there listening, if you've had heart surgery recently, Make sure you go in for your echocardiograms, basically like an ultrasound for your heart. Just keep getting checkups. So I went in to the hospital and this was going to be an open surgery where I was awake. And they gave me a bit of morphine. You know, I turned away because I knew the, the specifics of the surgery. Right. And the surgeon and, said. And awake because they didn't have to cut into your heart. So this time they didn't need to stop it. They were just trying to, you know, pull out. Blood. To blood. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. So how, that, wow. how they did it was... I was turned away because I knew what was going to happen. And the surgeon said, are you all right, Carl? And I looked over at him and I just went, oh, you know, like a, I went, shit, you know, what, why did he ask me if I'm all right? Because I looked at him and he had about a 20 centimeter needle in his hand. <laughs> and I went, can I get some more morphine? And they looked at each other like, mm, this guy, we've got to watch this guy, you know, he's keen on the morphine. But it was like, I was terrified. So I turned away again and he put this, this 20 centimeter like needle into my and what it goes, it goes into your chest, just goes right so between the, the ribs. Yeah. 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 Well, no, no, straight, straight on. So straight, straight from the chest, like straight down and it goes into your pericardium wall and it punctures that wall and they pull um, the blood out of, out of your pericardium. So mm -hmm. they pulled out two liters worth of blood. The nurses were in the background. They were holding two big bags. So like think of a two liter milk bottle, two liters of blood that was filling my pericardium. And squeezing the heart. Exactly, exactly. So that was my experience. And obviously after that, you're managing your heart, your heart health forever. You know, you're, you're, you're constantly managing mm -hmm. your health. So that was my experience, yeah. 
Wow. So two near-death experiences. The first one with the bug. And so the bug that, that you had there, that, you know, obviously, you know, got smaller in size. What happened to that? Did it, like, dissipate it in the end? Or, I mean, how do you yeah. know it's not going to, like... Well, with the echocardiogram, they, they had a look at it and it had gone. So you pretty much starved it out of the body. And the body will sort of in itself get rid of it? Yeah. Some yeah, way. So, so, yeah. You know, so because we, you'd be worried of infection if it's some, some you know, external tissue that's not part of your body. If it, you know, if it's that, then, then that, you know what I mean? Like Exactly. But I think what the cardiologist was saying was with that, with that particular bug, once it gets down to 0.5 centimeters, it's like no longer an issue, meaning... You know, like maybe it's too it's gonna, small. Yeah, it's too small, and it's just gonna, you know, the body's gonna take care of it in some way, or it's gonna flush it out, or, or something like that. Something you know? like that, yeah. So, so that was the first near-death experience. Then you had the pericardium, yeah. and it was all basically in your when you were eighteen in that year. All that happened in that year. Yeah, eighteen, and I spent about a year, you know, trying to get myself into a better, better possibility for repairing my heart valve. And so then I had my surgery when I was nineteen. And then, yeah, so so had the surgery when I was 19. Uh, no, so, sorry, sorry. Turned 19 in the hospital the first time. So I had the surgery when I was 20. And then about right. six months later, after the surgery, after the pericarditis and needed death experience, I went to Europe and I just went, all right, I've got to go and live. You know, I've, got to, I've had yeah. enough of this, this death stuff. I need to go and <laughs> enjoy life. So how do, you, how do you look after yourself these days? Fast forward, how is your health like? Are you, are you healthy? Yeah, yeah. So, so like I said, it's a, it's a management, you know, like, like mindset yeah. management, mental health management, you know, all these things. It's, it's, it's not like, great, I read one book, I did one thing, I'm sorted. It's, it's, it's continual every day waking up and, and putting the principles, putting the work that has you set up for a healthy heart for the rest of your life. So at the start, of, at the end of 2019, my heart actually got, went into AF, which is atrial fibrillation. So after a long time of it being, you know, having the pacemaker, the electrosurgeon believed that impacted it and put my heart into AF, which basically means the heart's been out of rhythm. And it's not a huge concern. It usually happens in people when they're about 70. And but he said, look, over time, we just don't want your heart to be worn out. So, and that's the main thing with cardiologists, electrosurgeons, it's all about trying to make sure my heart is given the best things that it can be given. Being efficient. For, for longevity. Exactly. So, so he said, look, you know, we'll do, we'll do a surgery. You know, we might put another wire in. We might you know, do different sort of things. And kind of like uh, the first question you asked where something we don't know about you. When I speak to family, I learn something new about my life that I didn't learn before. You know, kind of like the pub story. That was something I learned recently. Every time I go back to the electrosurgeon, cardiologist, I learn something new. You know, you know what I mean? So he told me about these wires. So there's two wires in there at the moment. One of the wires isn't really working because your heart's in fibrillation. And we're going to put in another wire, but we we're concerned because we don't put in too many wires into the actual heart. So the pacemaker the wires actually into the heart. And mm. I asked him why. He's sending a little current, right? Exactly correct. And he said, look, it complicates the heart. And also if there's an infection, if there's anything, and we have to pull out that wire, you know, we've got seconds to, to do the operation. Otherwise you're dead. So I was like, you know, I left, left another meeting. I was like, Jesus, there's, there's something more complex to this whole heart situation because these wires that are in my heart they have to be there forever i had in my mind that maybe one day my heart will get back into normal rhythm because it was, it was the pacemaker was pacing at 99 percent of the time so i thought great 
you know, I can work with 1%. Like, give me 1%. That's hope. That's belief. That's something. You know, maybe I can get my heart back into some sort of normal rhythm. I won't need a pacemaker. But those wires pretty much are ingrained in the heart. So that's another, another harsh reality, realization. And so he said, look, you're in AF. You know, I want to do this procedure. Then I also might, maybe we'll do a defibrillator on you, these different sort of things. And so I kind of left. And then, you know, 2020 came. It was about, you know, early 2020. And my family would contact me and say, you know, oh gosh, aren't you worried about this virus because of your your your, your heart situation, you know, mm. and that sort of thing. COVID, and, yeah. And I just totally shifted my mindset. I went, I'm going to do everything I can to improve my immune system. Absolutely everything under the sun. I healed myself naturally before. I can do everything. I I can control what I can control. I can control how I'm going to react. The world's going to do its thing, you know, but I can control how I'm going to react. So I... You know, got up every morning and and I got I was as fit as I was when I was 18. Ran ran an hour every morning, juiced, meditated, visualizations, um, affirmations. You know, listening to audiobooks. You know, learning more about the heart health, getting hawthorn berry, um, pomegranate vitamins. You know, like all these sorts of things that were you know CoQ10. You know, the ubiquinol form, which is better for your heart. So getting everything that I could, equip myself with everything that I could. I just went. I'm going to go hard on this because there was one measurement that I wanted to change and it was my ejection fraction. Now your ejection fraction is how well your heart beats. It's how well your heart pumps blood in and pumps blood out through, through your entire body, to your brain, everywhere. Most people's normal ejection fraction is 55 to 65. Mine was at 35. When you get to about 20 and below, it's touch and go. You can die. Um, you can't travel on planes and that sort of thing. It's like it's not enough volume of blood. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Your heart's just not doing its job. So I went, you know, like, this number has not changed in, you know, in, in the about you know, seven years or so. It has not changed at all. I went, I'm focusing on this number. I need to change this number. So I went hardcore, hardcore, hardcore. Didn't know if I could do it, if I could get, get that success. Went back to him and he sat there and we sat there and he said, Carl, I don't know what to do with you. And I went, oh shit, what do you mean? He said, everything has changed. Your heart actually now enjoys being in AF where only in about 5% of patients just after surgery does it ever like being in AF. But it's gotten stronger. It enjoys being in AF. Your um, injection fraction is up to 49%. And that's the only time it's ever changed. And he said, I don't know what to do with you. you know, so I went, wow. Like, okay, that's incredible. Like, that's good you know, news, yeah. That, that, that's what I wanted. <laughs> that's what I wanted, you know. I think any time you can understand that you've got some control over your finances, over your career, over your health, and you can actually decide you know what outcome that's going to be it's such a empowering thing mm. that's the biggest message here that's yeah. the biggest message for for anybody listening to this right now we take our health so much for granted and you know listening to your story just makes me realize you know oh shit you know i mean because i feel healthy i never really had any sickness you know, touch wood and issues. It just really makes me, you know, think even more about my own personal fitness and well-being because, you know, it's so easy sometimes to say, oh, we're busy and you know, I got to do this, you know, edit an episode of the podcast tonight and I got to do my job, my, you know, my full-time job. And so, you know, and maybe, oh, you know, my wrist is hurting from my, you know, session of, jiu-jitsu you know the night before so i'm gonna 
go easy, but this just makes me feel, you know, makes me feel like, you know what, I'm probably getting a bit relaxed here. You know, I'm taking things a bit too for granted. So if we, if we were to summarize or, you know, package it up into one key message for, for anybody is I would say, yeah, is to take it more seriously. Look after your health and fitness a bit more. The really good one that you mentioned is with COVID. That's one thing that's been very frustrating me and, you know, listening to, you know, even Joe Rogan mentioned on his, on his podcast, how yeah. the governments, you know, how they deal with this whole COVID situation and, you know, it's all politics and all this bullshit and, you know, and the solutions all about, you know, vaccine, 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 which is fine, but nobody talks about, you know, giving people an advice about strengthening immune system, what they could do. Nobody's saying it. Nobody exactly. from the politicians, nobody. I mean, obviously I'm a fitness professional. That's our message, but you know, people, you know, our message is, you know, you know, it doesn't always get through to the masses, right? And where you could make a big influence to the masses is through TV, through the news. And so it's just frustrating how you don't hear them saying it, you know, even just, you know, propose, you know, promoting you know going more for walk or you know eating healthier all that because if you have a stronger immune system and you're a perfect example you had to i mean th- that was not a question you you knew that that's that's how you decided to yeah to make sure that you reduce any risks with take you know getting infective covid by strengthening your system and taking it really seriously so i hope that this you know i hope that this can really make make somebody take these things seriously. Somebody that's listening right now to realize, okay, you know what? I'm going to go for a walk. I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to do something physically to move, to get my heart rate up, to strengthen my heart and, you know, and improve my immune system because yeah, it's, we're not, we don't hear it enough. 110%. And I think that's one, one thing we have to understand is things are not always going to be how they are right now. And I think we can get very comfortable. We can get very much in that sort of mode of thinking. Yeah, you know, everything's going to, it's a continuum. Everything's going to just continue as it is, you know, but what's the constant change, you know, and how quickly do we forget history? You know, whether it's history of, you know, like communism or social, you know, or dictatorships or, or, or governments or whatever it is, or history of my own health or history of like my relationships and different sort of things like that, you know, how quickly do we forget history and things that have worked for us in the past, things that haven't worked for us in the past as a society, as a personal person and in our relationships. You know, we mm. quickly forget because we're always looking forward, which is very good. And, and you know, but, and we're in the present moment as well. But I think we have to understand that, you know, things are going to change, you know, like we're all heading to the same destination in, in, this, in this life, you know, and we want to have the best quality of life while we're here. That takes work. That takes work. And the thing with solutions and, you know, whether it's government, whether it's someone listening to this and they go, look, you know, I can just, you know, take these, these supplements. I don't really need to do anything else. We all want the easy fix. We want the easy sale. You know, whatever's, what's the easiest thing we can sell to, to this person? You know, just bring it back to sales. And even to myself, you know, what's the easy sale right now? I'm feeling kind of lonely. I'm feeling kind of depressed. <sighs> Bar of chocolate. Let me go. I need a quick dopamine hit. You know, what's the easy fix? But, but what you need to start doing is realize that what's the long-term fix? You know, what's mm. the thing that's going to support me, you know, in two years, 10 years, five years? 
And for me, you know, it's not that I just woke up one day with this realization. I've had to live with this realization. I've got to take care of my longevity because of my very own heart. I've got to think. Yeah. In this, in this it's not a question. That was not a question. You had to. That was literally yeah. a question of life and death for yeah. you. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, like Joe Rogan, I think one of the things that he says is really good is um, the laziest motivated person, you know, that he knows. And I think that's the thing. It's, it's we understand that our, that our comfort, our, you know, we're creatures of comfort. And we go into those sort of, those moments where we just take, all right, what's the easiest fix? What can I just, you know, take one tablet, I'll be sweet. What can I do? You know, that, and we've got to keep challenging ourselves, you know, I think every day. And my biggest thing, you know, whether it's with my book, whether it's with talks, whether it's, you know, sharing my message is how can I break through that threshold and get to a new level and mm. just try and do that every day. And David Goggins says an amazing thing as well. Like, you know, do something that makes you uncomfortable every single day of your life. And it's not our natural way of being, but it's the, bit, the way of being that's going to serve you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, big one is ownership. We actually uh, had a really good interview with Jakub Zajicek on a few episodes back. If you guys go back about five episodes back, interview with uh, Jakub Zajicek, young entrepreneur from Czech Republic. And he talks about how he, he wanted to achieve a few things in 2020. He wanted to be more successful with his business. He wanted to find relationship, you know, find love. He wanted to improve fitness. And he's done all that by setting goals and taking ownership. But the way to get there, you know, it took him about two years because he was lacking discipline. So he did this thing with Andy Grisella, the 75 hard program, where you do, you know, yeah. 75 days, you, you work out every day, you do two workouts, one of them has to be outside. It's whatever you want, where you go for a walk and in terms of the other workout, again, whatever you want, it's not structured, it's kind of flexible, so anybody can do it. And, and eat well, you know, and don't drink alcohol for 75 days. And the whole purpose of it, it's not about improving your fitness or, you know, getting six pack or, or any of it. It's about building discipline. And as a result of doing that consistently, yes, you will improve your fitness and all that, but it's discipline. So you're kind of strengthening this thing here inside your skull. Mm. And when you do that, then when you do decide to, you know, okay, I want to achieve this, this year, you set your goals, then you're actually more likely to do that because you're more disciplined. And the whole thing with this is, like I said, ownership. Don't rely on others. Don't rely on government, this, this vaccine thing, say, you know, thinking, oh, you know, the vaccine's coming, vaccine's coming, so I'm just going to sit here and watch TV. No, don't rely on it. You don't know. How do, how do we know what's going to work, what's not going to work, right? But what you can do, do what you can or do what's in your control. And that kind of circles back to, to you, that decision that you made at the hospital when where you know you were giving two choices mm, exactly. you took the path of i want to you know i want to be in control and take my own path that's very powerful very powerful so yeah well yeah I, was, I think the greatest thing is that i was informed of both sides i think that's the biggest thing you know we can be very and i, I noticed it myself we can all be very judgmental or quickly to say oh no, I've heard some dodgy things about that or I've heard of a few charlatans in that arena. No matter if it's the left, right, whatever side, up, down, we can judge very quickly. But, you know, be informed from both sides and, you know, be a critical thinker and just observe everything. Look at all the information, look at all the data and then also ask yourself and not just ask one part of yourself, really sit with the questions. You know, what, what, what should I, like when you're working out a workout program, what's going to really work for me? 
know, mm. I really love to um, play football, but, you know, can I play football in this part of the world where we're in and out of lockdowns right now? No. Okay. So, and you're really asking those questions and really working out what can you do, you know, and that's the important thing because at the end of the day, the government has no obligation whether or not I've got a healthy heart, you know, <laughs> no. society's got no obligation to me. It's me. I've got an obligation to myself. I've got an obligation to my family. I've got an obligation to those that I'm going to add value to in the world. Yeah, absolutely. There's a great book that if I can recommend is called Leadership by Joko Willing. And a big thing about leadership is taking ownership. Yeah. And so I would definitely recommend as a, as a tip for reading. You also mentioned David Goggins. He's uh, another really good, I don't know, his book, the book of his, uh, the name Can't of his book. Can't hurt me. Can't hurt me. There you go. I haven't I haven't read that one, but I've heard so much about him and I watched all his videos. So so that's another one for you guys listening. David Goggins, Can't Hurt Me. Joko Willings, book called Lead Extreme Ownership. Yep. And another thing I was gonna say as a as a concept that is helpful to to think about is again based on another great interview that I did a few few episodes back with Mike Corey, who's traveling the world and doing, you know, extreme experiences as as a way to challenge his fears in order to you know expand his because you know amazing things happens when you when you when you get yourself outside the comfort zone and so he's doing that and he's he's got a youtube travel channel but one thing that i really like that we discussed there was you know we we are conditioned to to think certain way and believe what's possible based on our environment right and so in the western world and I'm not, you know, I'm not here promoting, you know, you should start thinking about, you know, alternative medicine or anything that, that just think about it as a concept that you can apply to anything. And he says that, you know, we are, we've got these set of goggles. We, we see the world through lenses, right? Through the way we've been conditioned in our environment. What he says is, you know, me traveling the world, going to, you know, Tanzania and, you know, going really deep with this tribe where they, you know, eating these honeybee from killer bees and they're, you know, and they eat it and it's, and they're happy about it. And I'm eating it and it uh, tastes like shit, but they're happy. And so it just made him realize, you know what, these people, they've got different lenses, you mm. know, for them, this is, this is a delicacy for me. It's something I wouldn't eat. And so just as a, as a, as a concept, every time, you know, trying to think, you know, be open-minded, you know, is it, is that the status quo? Or is there other alternative options? So, and by questioning that, that then makes you want to go and research and find more truth. We're here to experience life. You know what I mean? We're here to experience. And when you think of, think of yourself as a kid, you know, you want to pick things up. You want to tear things apart. You want to play with things. You're curious. You're intrigued. You're getting involved. You know, I mean... I was a bit of a wild child. I used to eat mud, you know, but I used to, you know, play with mud and, and, you know, and there's photos of me and I went, wow, you know, and, and my biggest thing coming through the teenage years, coming through that hard experience, it was how do I get back to that inner child? How do I get back to that child? And my mm -hmm. grandfather would say, you know, Kyle, never let that inner child die. Never let that inner child die inside you. I think too many of us come through the teenage years, come into the adult years and we allow ourselves to really be programmed to let that inner child die out in us. Correct. You know, got to ask that curiosity because there's so many layers of this life that we can experience. You know, my stepdad said you know, one time, we're all experiencing the same thing, but each of us choose how to experience it. Mm. You know? yeah. I think that, that's, that's the thing, you know, go out there 
and try things and, and go, okay, maybe they're coming from a different level of consciousness. Maybe they've got a different level of spirituality. Maybe to them, taste tastes different to them. You know, maybe they've got a different palate. Maybe, and once we realize different things, you know, and it can be very, it doesn't have to start off in the deep end, you know, talking about consciousness and spirituality for a lot of people can be quite confronting. Just look at uh, a dog that can hear different sounds to us or, uh, you know, like a dolphin or different, you know, different animals that can hear and see different things that, you know, that we can, that we can't, you know, that there's mm. different frequencies, there's different energies around us that we can't even tap into, you know, That's right. in, in Sri Lanka, Ward was also staying in Sri Lanka during the tsunami and all the animals just started rushing up the hill hours before the tsunami came through and wiped, wiped the town out, you know? So you can see in life so many examples of something outside of the physical reality you know, touching things that we know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when we bring it to the theme of success, if we talk about, you know, having that inner child, the opportunity to express the inner child, the opportunity to express your creativity and have that freedom to do it. So, Look, Kyle, I think we're going to wrap it up because I generally keep it to an hour. So on the ending note, what would be the top three things for the listeners of this podcast today to walk away with? I think number one is to work out who you are. Like start working out who you are. Ask yourself, sit down with those questions. And, I, and for me to, to believe that I could heal myself again and, and believe that I could write a book and I believe, that, believe in my own business, I had to work out what I'd achieved so far and, and, and you know, where, where I'd come so far. And, you know, it comes back to self-worth, you know, maybe you don't think you've achieved a lot of things, but go deep into yourself and see like, Oh, wow. You know, I actually came out of school or, or maybe I dropped out of school and I followed a passion or, you know, oh, maybe that didn't last, but I actually showed different signs. You know, I showed that I could have determination. I could have follow through. I could, you know, I could try a few different things and succeed at them. So really work out who you are and then realize that around the world, people that are successful, the people that have worked that out, developed on it and kept going every day with it and kept building and kept growing. You know, and I think probably another thing that I would say, you know, is, is get uncomfortable every day as you can. Get uncomfortable, question things, be curious, be that curious inner child, you know, try and find that curious inner child in every day of your life because that's what's actually going to take you to new heights. You look at people, you know, whether you like him or hate him, but you look at people like Musk, you know, the things that he's doing. You know, do you think he doesn't question himself? Do you think he doesn't get uncomfortable? You know, do you think he doesn't have days where, you know, like it's, it's terrible or it's just too hard or like it's overwhelming or he wishes his mind would be quiet or whatever it is, but he's constantly challenging himself and getting out there and trying new things and not giving up. And I think the third thing I would say is there's a community. You know, no matter what you do, no matter what you're into, there's always a community out there. You know, people call it a tribe. People call it, you know, like your soul people, whatever it is. But there's a community of people that are going to think like you. They're going to support you. And support could just be chatting to you. Support could have been something that you said to me during this podcast. And I take that away for the rest of the day and go, oh, awesome. I'm going to look at my perspective on life a little bit differently. So really find that community. Realize that there's other people going through stuff. You know, there's people that have gone through far, far worse things than you have and are achieving far greater things. And on the opposite, you know, people that have been given everything and shooting down in demise in their life. So mm -hmm. just realize that there's a community 
And there's going to be people there that can support you, people that are going through similar hardships, you know, people that have their own you know, demons to get over in their life every day and their own you know, addictions and different sort of things. But get out there, reach out to these people. And, and I've been developing a lot of accountability buddies lately. You know, for my book, I'm an accountability buddy for my business and then for my health and different sort of things, you know, realizing, great, I can bring other people into my life that can help me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great points. And to strengthen them, I'm going to repeat them in my own words. So work out who you are in a way, basically figure out your true, true passions and, yep. and realize that we've been conditioned. So sometimes you're not really fulfilling your or fully expressing your, your true desires. So, so go within and work out what those are and so that you can be true yourself. Number two, get uncomfortable because that's so, so many times mentioned on this podcast, you know, amazing things happen outside the comfort zone. So get uncomfortable, seek something that will challenge you, whether it be, you know, running a marathon that, you know, that you obviously train up for because otherwise you get bloody shin splints, but you know, whatever that is, just get, get uncomfortable every now and then so that you can expand and, and find new opportunities that you wouldn't have seen or think about before whilst you know if you're sitting on the sofa watching netflix you're not going to see those opportunities and number three there's always community like you said there's people that are like-minded and what i also like about that is people everyone has their own experiences and so you don't have to travel the world to see you know to to come across new lenses to come across new observations and, and see the world and different view you can also do that by listening to others because that can also give you a perspective on life so by by going into community you know being social that's how you do it and i think that's very important because if you talk about you know topic of you know being lonely which a lot of people have been during covid being lonely maybe you know even feeling very depressed which i think a lot of people felt and still feel in certain parts of the world where covid still is more prominent then, you know, it's so easy to go within yourself and just sort of isolate yourself in your own head and have, you know, bad thoughts and things like that. Go out. And if you can't go out, jump on a Zoom call or, you know, there's so many online communities and just get on a call. One really good example, actually, actually uh, a practical tip here, if you're listening and that applies to you, check out Clubhouse. Clubhouse is a brand new social media platform where you literally can join discussions that are real time at any time on any topic. And there's people that are talking, there's usually a panel and you can either be an active listener or some of the smaller, smaller groups in clubhouse that I've been to, you actually get opportunity to speak. So you have opportunity to, to be part of the discussion. And I think that's a great way to, to make sure that you don't stay isolated and, and you can, you know, work, you know, help, help your mental health yeah i've been thinking about getting an iphone just to get on clubhouse now when you do let me know i'll send you invite because clubhouse is not really an open you can't just get into clubhouse guys if you're uh, thinking about it this is important thing clubhouse is very unique it started last year and uh, and the way they operate is that they're, they're exclusive community and they do it for a reason they want to make sure that they they have a vote they've got a voting system by the by the user community to make sure that no you know assholes 
get in there to just you know yeah trolls yeah that's right so so the way clubhouse ho- works is you can either obviously download the app and and apply and then you have to wait through a long process and might take months before they let you in or the other option is you know somebody who's already there and they can invite you because they know that you you know the troll and you know and you be a good, you know you'd be able to add more to the community so kyle when you download it let me know and i'll, I'll certainly add you in mate thanks really appreciate that mate Awesome. Now, thank you so much for being on the show, Kyle. If somebody wants to reach out to you today because they've resonated with your message and and I know that you know you make impact in the world by many ways. You've got your photography business. So for any business inquiries or for anybody looking to actually hire you, they could do that, I guess, if they're in Perth. But do you travel much for work as well? I guess as, at the moment, I guess a bit more tricky, but not in the normal circumstances. Well, I'll be over in your neighborhood soon because you know my grandmother's 89. I actually share the same birthday as my grandmother. And so she's, she lives in Sydney and most of my family lives uh, in Sydney. So I'm, I'm definitely going to be back and forth there. And, you know, with the photography business, I also help coach different sort of people. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm not someone who comes in and, and goes, oh, you need me for everything. And I go, great, you know, for your daily posts, you know, this is how you can take images better with your phone. You know, this is how you can do it better yourself here, there and everywhere. If you want some know powerful images that are going to be hero images that are going to just smack people in the throat and say you know listen up here grab some attention you know this is what i can do for you so with the photography side of things you know i, I do things that are online and yeah to get more i guess international without leaving leaving my shores that's where i'm going with you know the decided destiny movement you know with the with the book with the videos with the things that i'm doing in that arena to try and get out you know i've got a daily decided destiny dose daily decided dose on YouTube, Carl Spreedies, and I just try and put out a positive message every day. And those messages come out from something that, I, that occurred in the day, you know, how I reacted to something or a challenge or something like that. So, yeah, that, they're the sort of platforms that I'm working with. I love it. I love it. Making great impact in the world, Kyle. That's just awesome. Let's wrap it up. I've, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate you taking time to uh, on Saturday to jump on a call with me and do this and and help me make more influence and uh, inspire more people towards success by sharing your story today you've done that so once again i appreciate that and those of you guys listening i appreciate you too for tuning in today and you know you could have easily watched netflix and you decided to listen to this which i think it's serves more purpose in life i would say so thank you to you too if you're new to this podcast make sure that you follow or subscribe Whichever platform that you follow, follow you know, listening this from, whether it be iTunes or Spotify, you've got you can easily follow so that you get uh, or subscribe, sorry, so that you can get up to date with when I re- release new episodes. If you want to be part of my newsletter, jump onto the successinspiredpodcast.com website, uh, where you'll find show notes for every episode. I do transcripts. I put a lot of information in my show notes, including you know special offers from my guests. I'll be mentioning all the links for Kyle's business, so you can reach out to him if you're looking for any photography stuff, as well as his YouTube channel and, and his Instagram, so you can reach out to Kyle that way. And there's also a link how you can subscribe to my newsletter and also include your newsletter, Kyle, so you can subscribe to your newsletter for uh, um, positive motivation. So... On that note, I guess we've covered everything that you need to know and in relation to this episode. So thank you once again, guys, for listening. I appreciate you. I appreciate you, Kyle. And have a great rest of your day, everybody. Bye.